into the net by Kylian Mbappe. Oh, Benyera, beautifully done. Cornet finds Dembele. The first touch is good. The second is deadly. Neymar still. Oh, my word, what a goal. Golovin, lovely finish. Oh, yes, delivery. Gendouzi's header. Here's an opportunity, Sanchez. Outrageous goal from Gael Kakuta. Hello everyone and welcome to the latest episode of Le Bourgeois, the official Ligue 1 Uber Eats podcast in English. And it's that time of year. We have all managed to survive the international break and now coming up an utterly packed show for you today as the French footballing world goes into a flutter over Le Classique. That's right, Paris Saint-Germain and their nemesis Olympique de Marseille will face off at the Parc des Princes on Sunday night. And in today's show, we'll be looking back at the history of this fixture and just why it means so much. We travel back in time to the last time OM won the league. And we've got a player profile of Marseille's Emran Soglu. That's right. There's every chance this will be remembered as a classic episode of Le Beaujeu. So to help me, Robbie Thompson, your host, ensure that it is, I'm joined by three of the best in the business. Jonathan Johnson. A Parisian through and through. Looking forward. It's always a special week. How are you feeling? Yeah, very well. Thank you. Uh, looking forward to it. Obviously, I spent a bit of time off over the summer, so getting straight back into it. Had PSG Nice on the Friday, PSG Dortmund on the Tuesday, and then obviously the big one uh, coming up on Sunday. So can't wait to get stuck into it. Andreas Evagora. Uh, Le Classique for, for, for us brings back memories of, and I'm, I'm not excluding the younger guys from this conversation, but... The, the the matches between these two sides in the early nineties, which were were Marseille's to lose, they were they were a physical side. They were the best side in in the in the country, the best side in Europe in nineteen ninety three as well, with that uh, a jamais le premier victory in the Champions League. But the tide has turned. But there's there's still something about these historical ties, isn't there? Oh, it's still the biggest match of the, of the season for both of those two club supporters, and and the build ups already started, even though it's a Obviously, a, a European week as well. People are already talking about it. So, yeah, it's a big week in France. And the final member of the panel, last but certainly not least. And to be fair, we had to uh, have someone from the south, although I, you can't always hear it in his accent, Luke Entwistle, who's with us for this episode of the pod, uh, proudly representing Olympic de Marseille, perhaps uh, this afternoon, even though we know you're a little bit along the coast towards uh, the principality. But but Luke, how 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 are these weeks met in the south of France? Uh, these uh, well, these weeks are I met with well, it's it's been hot. Let's put it that way. I mean, always on the weather, but the the seasons are turning. But yeah, I mean, obviously, the Le Classique is the the big headline event this weekend. But we also have another pretty fun derby on the Friday night. That I'm sure we'll also get around to, to talking about a little bit nearer to the principality actually within it. So uh, looking forward to covering both. Exactly. There are always big games coming up every weekend in French football and the top flight. Get involved in the conversation. We've got all the latest articles, profiles, in-depth interviews and the like on the official Ligue 1 Uber Eats website, ligue1.com, ligue1.com if you prefer. Get involved in the conversation on Twitter as well at Ligue 1 underscore ENG for English. And of course, we're here on all your major podcast platforms. So like, subscribe, follow and recommend. 
Well, without any further ado, let's get right into the action. We had two weeks off, well, a week off, but it felt like an eternity without Ligue 1 football for the international break. There were plenty of Ligue 1 stars in action as well. That might pop up in conversation, but it all burst back into action in Ligue 1 with match day five of the season on Friday night. And, ladies and gentlemen, a first loss of the season for Paris Saint-Germain. We always think that perhaps this is going to be Nice's season. They've got quality players. They've got a very young coach in Francesco Farioli, who's largely untried as, as the main man in the, in the hot seat. But uh, we'll start with you, JJ, who was there. It was uh, a big game at the Parc des Princes. And Nice, you'd have to say, deserved winners over 96, 97 minutes. Yeah, absolutely. Difficult to argue uh, with the result. Uh, you know, I think it's important as well to point out first and foremost, it was a very impressive performance by Nice because a lot of people were sort of umming and ahhing before the game about sort of how good Nice's start to the season have been because obviously they are unbeaten, they're still unbeaten, uh, but they only picked up their first win of the season just before the international break. Uh, you know, but I think this dispelled any sort of doubts, uh, you know, very clearly Farioli, uh, you know, has a clear message for his players and is getting them to play, uh, you know, pretty convincing football already. I think it was aided as well on the night by a superb individual performance by Tyrone Moffi, uh, you know, who I think just goes from strength to strength really since his arrival in, uh, in Liga. But, you know, also I would temper that by saying that I don't think it's necessarily, you know, all doom and gloom for PSG. I actually managed to take quite a few things from that performance and I think it's things that we haven't seen from PSG for quite some time now because there very clearly is the, the the first kind of shoots of like a real team ethic uh, around the side for the first time in a long time uh, and I think you know when you are basically overhauling the squad in the way that it really uh, you know it's been overdue for the last couple of years it's going to take time for a new manager to get their ideas across to what's essentially uh, you know a hugely changed squad and you know that i think that there are some encouraging signs there yes they've lost there's going to be no uh you know chance to go for an unbeaten season but equally if it wakes them up in time for the dortmund and marseille clashes i think a lot of psg fans will probably uh you know accept taking that loss because i don't think there's quite as much sort of despair around psg in the way that they're playing now as there was uh, under Christoph Geltier and Maurizio Pochettino before him. It's, it feels more encouraging. Uh, and you even look at, you know, the fact that, you know, Kylian Mbappe has started the season like a house on fire. It's not a question of whether they can score enough goals. Uh, it's, you know, now a question if they can sort of tighten up the defence. And with two key absentees uh, from that game, Captain Marquinhos and also uh, influential midfielder Manuel Ugarte, uh, you know, I think we'll expect to see a much changed PSG side for these games against Dortmund and Marseille. That's right, JJ. Plenty, uh, plenty of food for thought there. I'd, I'd like to have a little chat about this, the changes at PSG. I'll come back to it in a moment because I'd like to hear the Nice angle of things first from, from Luke down south. Um, Kylian Mbappe did score two fantastic goals. He's got seven now in, in four appearances of five games this season because he missed the opening match, of course. But this was all about Terra Moffi, Luke. There was so many questions at the start of the season Nice don't have a striker that's suited to to Farioli, and Farioli always say Farioli always say no. Look, Terra Moffi, okay, he's not my archetypal or classic striker that 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 I would have chosen, but I think he's going to bring a lot to this side, and we saw it in all its glory. And it's not the first time he's done it against PSG either. Yeah, I mean those questions I found slightly odd. I mean he had to fend off that kind of rhetoric quite often, saying you know 
you surely don't want a striker whose biggest strength is running in behind and playing on the, the shoulder of the last man. Uh, but, he, you know, he fended those off nicely and said, you know what, I, I think that I can get the best out of him. I think I can improve him as a player and I think that he can actually work really well within my system. I think that PSG worked, you know, they played right into Nice's hands a little bit. I thought that maybe in the absence of Ugarte, I think PSG's rest defence probably wasn't correctly positioned at times and there was so, there's so much space for Moffi and often for the board as well uh, to just run into and to you know to pick their moments to pick their passes so I, I think that you know this was a case of a team playing in their hands but obviously Moffi played and scored against Strasbourg as well a team that sits lower so I think you've got two good tests there that show uh, Moffi's versatility but also Farioli's versatility and his ability to adapt and to well utilize a striker that as you say is maybe not his archetypal striker i think that moffy can add things to his game still yeah i think there's you know some glaring weaknesses there still but i really love watching him play and i, I think you know beyond the two goals both of which were fantastic especially the second one what i enjoyed most was arguably the the assist for the board's goal uh just completely sat down danilo just such confidence within the box at the part des Princes to do that uh, it was really the Terran Moffy show, you know, taking off his shirt, really riling up, killing Mbappe in the process. It was it was a great performance and he completely stole the show. Um, yeah, you know, at PSG's home. Well, I'm not going to bite at the uh, obvious baiting there about uh, the, the Kylian Mbappe reaction to Terran Moffy taking his shirt off. Uh, it is what it is. But what I, what, I, what I will say, and just to clarify, of course, is that Terran Moffy opened the scoring, a deflected shot in the first half, but Nice had already had the first couple of shots of the game. They, they, they've been more decisive, I think, going forward. Then uh, Kylian Mbappe equalised with an absolutely stunning first-time strike from uh, Ashraf Hakimi cross. And then early in the second half, it was really the Terra Moffi show. He, he set up Gaetan Laborde with a fantastic run and catching Paris Saint-Germain out at the back. And then, as you say, he got goal number three, great solo run from Laborde returning the favour. And then Kylian Mbappe um, with Randall Colomwani's first uh, appearance in a, in a Paris Saint-Germain shirt, providing the assist for Kylian Mbappe. Uh, we haven't seen for Paris Saint-Germain Usman Dembele, Randall Colomwani and Kylian Mbappe on the left, which many think should be, will be the future France front three for, for years to come. It is, it is exciting on paper. But Andreas, I'd like to come back to what, what JJ was just saying about how and, and Luis Enrique said it after the game. He said, "Look, I'm not disappointed at all. Nice played fantastic. It was a, a brilliant match of football. But I liked what I saw from my team. I thought we played well. And I'm trying to think of the last time that a coach came into Paris Saint Germain and really tried to change the identity or impose a style of play. Because we had the Laurent Blanc side, the four three three, which was which was a side that tried to play this this possession based game." It was all changed. They got rid of Zlatan Ibrahimovic, which was the, the, the alpha male in the changing room um, when Unai Emery arrived and looked for a watershed. But he, was, he never managed to impose a new style um, at Paris Saint-Germain. Then we had uh, Thomas Tuchel. Again, I don't think he really managed to, to impose his style on the game. If, and then Pochettino, the same thing. So now we've had a string of coaches that have looked to play to the strengths of a Neymar and Mbappe without imposing a real style. Luis Enrique 
He obviously doesn't have Messi, doesn't have Neymar, doesn't have Marco Verratti anymore. I'll get to that. Tears running down my face still once all that was confirmed. But this is a coach now at Paris Saint-Germain who's trying to impose his style. Could this be what what Paris Saint-Germain's been lacking? Well, I think to answer your question, coaches have tried to come and impose their style. I mean, Tuchel tried to, but I think they've been overshadowed by the hierarchy and the players that come in because in general, these huge stars have come in, uh, you know, Neymar's come in and Messi's come in and the rest. And they've kind of had to adapt to the dressing room. And we all know, you know, the rumors that have come out that the dressing room has been so strong. It's been very hard for a coach to come in. And then you get uh, the, 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 the coach's boss and then the players. And sometimes they go kind of behind the, the coach's back to, to the club president and so on. So it's very difficult for coaches to do it. The question is whether coaches have been given the confidence of the hierarchy. Um, I think in this case, I agree with Jonathan. I, I think it's certainly too early to be talking about real problems at PSG. I think once Colo Moani and Dembele get going with Mbappe, that's going to be such a good front three. A mitigating factor this weekend was, was the late arrival of the South Americans. I mean, we should say Marquinhos and Ugarte got back on Thursday and the match was on Friday, and, and the match was brought forward, remember, uh, to give PSG more time to prepare for Dortmund. So, you know, it, it, taking nothing away from Nice, but I think that that was a big element as well. Um, there were some worrying things. I was a bit worried about Skriniar because um, Terra Moffi really was running him ragged from the beginning, and Skriniar was pulling his shirt and doing everything possible to pull him back. Danilo as well. Um so to answer your question, yeah, I think Luis Enrique needs to be given time. How often have we said that? He certainly comes with the CV. He's certainly got the players. But excellent job from, from Nice. I mean, they just played superbly well. Uh, I, I was listening to the halftime interview with Terra Moffi, which was in English, incidentally. And the journalist, whose English was okay, said, um, so what, what did your coach ask you to do? And Terra Moffi said, to win. And that was it. This awkward silence, you know. Uh, he he really was just so matter of fact about it, uh, and that's what happened. And uh, Muffy was amazing. I mean, all you guys have talked about it. Uh, looking at Lekeep, as as we know, Lekeep is famously mean, isn't it? With its with its marking, uh, it's for for people listening around the world. Lekeep has got this marking system, which players really look at in France. You know, sometimes they call up Lekeep and say, you know, why did I only get a seven or whatever? And Muffy got a nine. And I, I don't think I've ever seen a player get a 10. I'm sure one of you will correct me. But, it, you know, nine is a really, really good mark from Lekeep. So that just shows how good uh, Moffy was. I think Messi once got a 10, didn't he? Yeah. And yeah, I I'm trying to think. I remember the Nice, uh, nice player, Eduardo. Was it Eduardo? Who All scored right. five goals. He got a 10. I remember that. But it's it was, rare. Uh, it it's was, very it rare. It is rare. It is very, very rare. <laughs> and I think they keep a list of it. When a, whenever a player does get a 10, they are. They pull out the list and say it's only happened, you know, four times in the history of, of that we've been we've been following it. And look, I'm not one, obviously, to to blow my own trumpet. Hosts are notoriously humble people on <laughs> uh, on TV and podcasts as well. But I'll ask uh, producer Stephen to look back into the archives of Le Bourgeau because back in January 2001, there was a certain Nigerian striker who was just trying to find his feet in Ligue 1. And uh, we on Le Bourgeois, the official Ligue 1 podcast, were asked to uh, predict who we think was going to make a splash in the second half of the season. And um, I'll see if we can't find it, where uh, I pulled out the name of a certain Terra Moffi and said, maybe this guy will be one to, to, to keep an eye on. I'm just 
Just saying. Luke, some coaches uh, struggle to to impose their their vision, impose their style, and then you have Eric Wa. How on earth has he done what he is doing at Brest? If they're and and hats off. I know Eric. He he worked at a TV station. I worked at. Uh, uh, in in France as well for a long time as a as a consultant, um, he was in and out of the game. He was a, a a central defender that played for Nice, played in the south of France, played I think one season in England, didn't he, or in Scotland, or and uh, and went uh, had a sporting directorship job or something in Scotland at, at once. Anyway, there was an English link, and um, very nice guy, very uh, forthright and and a classic. 80s French football man. Um, but despite all of that, I just did not see him turning around Brest in the sec- in the latter stages of last season and now has them sitting second in the league after five matches. And we at the start of each season, we sort of go, who's going to be the surprise packet? Who's going to be the surprise packet? Never in a million years did I think that would be Stad Brest. What is going on up there, Luke? I mean, I, I wish that I could kind of explain. I mean, what you say there is, you know, everyone's quite surprised. Everyone is surprised. I think that lots of us in the preview had Brest as one of the two going down. I think basically all of us had Brest going down. But um, I mean, yeah, a long time out of coaching as well. And to come in and, and to, I mean, I wouldn't say he necessarily hit the ground running straight away last season. I think that he did well last season. I think that um, there were, you know, three, four, five worse sides than Brest. And I, I think that he did well to kind of rejuvenate regardless coming in mid-season. It's never, you know, it's, it's never easy. But then this season, I don't really know what's happening. But when you look kind of on paper, the, the team is actually quite strong. It's not strong, strong, but it's it's definitely worthy of the ventre mou. And maybe we kind of underrated a few of the elements within, you know, a few of the individuals within that squad. You know, Pierre-Lys Melu didn't necessarily work out in England for him, but was great at Nice and has come back and has looked great and, you know, got a goal again against against France in, in their win. And then you look at the front three, you know, Satriano doesn't score many goals, but he's quite appreciated as a striker who who gets, you know, who does the press and who does all, all the hard work and, and allows others around him to, to thrive. They kept hold of Le Duaron, they kept Del Castillo as well. You just kind of look at it and think, you know what, this is actually an all right team. It, it's, you know, it's, it's the makings of, of a half-decent side. And, uh, yeah, the King has got them... Playing, you know, pretty good football as well. I mean, that that game against Lens, I think we look at it now in, with slightly different with a slightly different perspective because we thought this was Lens who had just completely chucked this game away. But Brest just dominated the second half of that game, deservedly won, arguably with a little bit of help from the referee. But you look at that now and you say, actually, you know what? That was just, you know, that that is where Brest are currently. You know, I'm not saying they're better than Lens or have a better team than Lens, but they have the capacity to dominate games, to dominate possession, which um, you know, we've not really said that about Brest for the past few years for, a, you know, for a very long time. So clearly he's working some magic there. And I mean, I don't expect them to keep in second, but if they finish, you know, in the top half of the table, which is certainly a possibility, then that's an extremely strong season for a team with the resources of Brest. What I like about this Brest team, I mean, their nickname is the Pirates. Um, Le Roy, who you, you very rightly call the King, um, without any hesitation in your in your your spiel just then of course le roi means the king in in english um but they've shown plenty of character you talk about their comeback game in, in that opening match against Lens. they came back again here they conceded inside 90 seconds against Rance, but they're showing that pirate character 
where they bounce back, and that's what I that's what I particularly like about uh, about this side. Um, JJ, we've seen Fabio Grosso come in after the last episode. We were saying, and I think who was it that predicted that? Was it you, Luke, saying that Laurent Blanc would be sacked before before Christmas at the start of the season? I'm thinking it might have been one of the it was a me, bold yeah. prediction from somebody. It might well have been. Well, Laurent Blanc, Larry White has gone. <laughs> JJ, Fabio Grosso, a former um, homme de la maison, as we say in French, someone from the house. He he played there, the World Cup winner. Um, of course, he he fell over Lucas Neal's leg in the in the World Cup round of sixteen against Australia back in two thousand and six. To send Italy through in penalty in the last minute of the game against Australia, we won't uh, we won't dwell on that. But Laurent Blanc has gone. Uh, the arrival of Fabio Grosso, he wasn't coaching in the final game of the weekend against Luave. He, he was sitting in the stands watching nervously, <laughs> I think, as any anyone about to take the poison chalice of coaching Olympic Lyonnais at the moment was. JJ, what can we expect from Fabio Grosso? I mean, Lyon dominated again but failed to score. They've got quality players. There's just things are not clicking. Yeah, it's uh, it's interesting looking at sort of the the struggles um, that Leon have gone through at the moment. Um, I think Grosso is an intriguing choice. It's not not the most obvious uh, of picks. Uh, I do think they've perhaps dodged a bullet, uh, not going for Gattuso, who was sort of the early favourite uh, in the discussions as to who would take over. Uh, but Grosso, I mean, like you said, uh, you know, former player, so knows the club a little bit, has a bit of uh, sort of experience uh, with OL. Uh, obviously Jean-Michel Olas chiming in and saying that it was a, a nice surprise to see a former player take the take the role. Always important to keep him on side, despite the fact that he's moved on, allegedly. Um, and I think there's the, the problems that Lyon have at the moment are much more uh, you know, fundamental than just not simply scoring goals on the pitch to win games. Uh, you know, I noticed, um, I think it was Gregory Coupe who commented on Twitter about Sonny Anderson basically trying to rally the players and what he said in it was, you know, you're going to need more than that uh, to basically, uh, you know, G up these players who have become too comfortable in the the situation they're in, uh, you know, playing for a club where basically they're treated as world beaters before they've actually sort of proven anything on the pitch. Uh, and I think that's quite telling about the the challenge that Grosso has, uh, has walked into. Now, Grosso's... Um, reputation itself uh, you know it doesn't sort of immediately jump off of uh, the paper when you're reading his cv uh, yes he did get frozinone uh, promoted to Serie A, but he wasn't chosen to continue with them in the italian top flight uh, he was replaced instead by eusebio di francesco and grosso i think the main selling point of his managerial experience so far has to be the fact that he spent time in juventus's youth academy uh, and is used to working with some of these younger players because that's absolutely key to what he's going to need to do next with Leon. how he's going to need to try and turn them around. But obviously, as we've seen from performances on the pitch, uh, you know, recently, that is a massive, massive undertaking. And Leon at this moment in time, fortunate that there are two worse teams than them, at least according to the league on table in Clermont and Lens, uh, you know, because this Leon side have been absolutely wretched since the beginning of the season. And, you know, Grosso is now going to have uh, a massive task uh, ahead of him. And luckily for him, I think the bar has been set quite low so far this season under Laurent Blanc. So, you know, fingers crossed he can turn them around, get them performing, um, you know, in, uh, in, a, in a coherent fashion and starting to pick up points. 
But like some of the former players commenting in the press recently uh, have alluded to, you know, perhaps those problems are deeper rooted than simply just being sort of underperforming good players. It certainly seems to be some kind of poisonous, toxic mentality that's overtaken the the players and that you know, really needs somebody who has knowledge of the club uh, and the club's values and what it stands for in order to get them performing once again. I'm interested in what you're saying, John, because this idea of players going back, I've always found that interesting because, look, when he was there, Leon were a winning machine and now they're anything but. And everything has changed at Leon since then. I mean, obviously, the management has changed. The players have changed. They're not even playing in the same stadium. And I know he speaks very good French, but I'm wondering if sometimes we talk about that a bit too much, you know, going back to your old club when it's completely different. If I went back to a company I was working at 15 years ago, you know, it changes so much. I mean, is that really a factor? <laughs> no, I mean, I, 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 I certainly take your point, but I think um, one of the things that's really been missing in recent years for, for Leon is, you know, somebody who's really sort of invested in the project, understands sort of what the the club is supposed to stand for. I mean, yes, it's difficult to, expect Lyon to continue to be as dominant uh, you know, over the French footballing landscape after PSG were taken over uh, by the Qataris and have obviously swept all before them, or at least at times during their reign. But I don't think many people expected Lyon to fall off quite as badly as they have. Uh, you know, they, they were more competitive, certainly at the beginning of uh, you know, the, the sort of Qatari reign with, uh, with PSG. And you know, I do think it takes former players to sort of walk in and recognize that you know, did it necessarily need to get to this point? Uh, I'm not so sure. You know, I think certain poor decisions were made before this uh, in terms of some of the play, uh, some of the coaches that were brought, brought in. But, you know, you also have a point, Andreas, in that going back doesn't necessarily mean that there's going to be a fix. Uh, you know, in, in terms of legends going back to the club, Janino, you can't get any bigger uh, than him returning to the club as a sporting director, uh, you know, and that didn't work out. He even managed to fall out with Olas in the end. I mean, who doesn't these days? But it's, yeah, it, it's it's a gamble. But I think in terms of trying to at least turn things around and getting the players to realize that, you know, they actually have to prove something on the pitch. You know, they actually have to win the right to be considered, uh, you know, top players now. Uh, you know, it really takes somebody who knows and understands what Leon was before, uh, you know, and, and what sort of, has put them in this situation with all of this history sort of weighing down on top of them at the moment, uh, you know, to, to really start, you know, playing for the badge, uh, you know, getting the fans back on side and, and turning that form around, uh, you know, and I'm not sure that somebody like, uh, uh, you know, a Gattuso, uh, you know, who has a couple of brilliant ranty moments, but doesn't necessarily look like he's cut out for sort of management at the top level tactically, uh, you know, would be the right person to, to go for that. You know, I think Grosso at least, you know, understands and gets, uh, you know, what the, you know, the culture of the club has been uh, and, uh, you know, sort of where these players need to get to in the coming months uh, in order to sort of be respected, uh, you know, by the by the fans and, and sort of backed by them week after week. I think as well, I mean, what what's happened even in, in recent weeks and months, I think kind of supports a very individualistic kind of mindset amongst the players. I mean, you're seeing players like, you know, Bradley Barcola, like, Casello Lukeva both leaving for a huge money in the summer off just the back of a few months. I mean, obviously the financial issues at the club kind of are are creating that situation as it were. But I think that for at least the past few years, you've seen youth products uh, break through and leave very, very quickly and kind of move up the ladder as it were. And I think 
trying to reinstall some kind of culture where there is an appreciation of the club, of the values of the club um, and of its history, I think is quite important to kind of retain those players for longer than a few months because you've got players, as I say, like Barcola, who, you know, he knows and he knew and, and it did come to pass that you have three or four good months in a Lyon shirt and then suddenly you're off. I mean, if that doesn't motivate other players to think in a very individual way and about their own personal progression, uh, rather than about the collective objectives, then then you know what does so, you know I think um, I think there needs to be a whole reevaluation re- there. Yeah, I I agree with that. Except that I think it, that's up up to the club. I mean, yes, there are, the players will always think as as individuals. Players will always look to where the the best money is, or their best chance of winning trophies, or or look out for themselves. I mean, and what's more is they're told time and time again that their career is very short. They've got to make these right decisions. It's a club that needs to be strong. And I think this is where you see where off-field decisions, and it can be as high up as ownership, where the changing of a changing of the guard between a, a, a historic owner who's been there for 35 years, look at a club like Auxerre, who, I mean, it happens time and time again. Lens, when Gervais Martel left as well, a club that went down, Paris Saint-Germain, when, the, when Canal Plus left and, and other investors took over. It, it Time and time again, it repeats itself of, of things that you you can tell yourself, this is not going to affect the playing squad. The playing squad's in a bubble. We're doing this, but it does because it's all decisions that made around the the a club that the supporters are watching, and all of this affects uh, a, a football club. is not an, a normal business. It's a very special business, a, a massive balancing act of of trying to keep plates spinning uh, everywhere all around you. And and if anything gets a little bit unhinged, then the whole thing can come apart at the seams. That's enough about Olympic Lyonnais. We have one more team to talk about. Um, and it's because Folloran Balogun came off the bench and got his first goal for Monaco. Um, they almost got another win. They're, they're leading the way at the top of the table. It was a 97th minute equaliser and not the only last-minute goal we had uh, during this week as well, this weekend's round of matches. There were some very uh, thrilling matches, including uh, Nantes holding on with a missed penalty from Clermont's Mohamed Chan uh, in the 96th minute. And for Monaco, Folloran Balogun came off the bench and and scored what looked like it was going to be the winner before Romain Fevre, uh, the former Lyon player, the former... Uh, Breastman equalised in the 97th minute. Luke, Monaco and Balogun, is this the start of a, a wonderful relationship? I mean, you would think so. It feels like a maybe not a transfer that Monaco have done in recent times, but ones that they've done kind of historically that you think should really kind of pay off. I mean, he needed just three minutes uh, on the pitch against Lorraine to get his goal. And having seen... Wissam Ben Yedda, so blunt and struggling kind of so much to have an influence on that game. I, I think that contrasted quite a lot. And despite the fact that Adi Husa is saying these two players aren't in competition, they can play together, um, I don't see a world in which, in which that can happen, personally. Um, or at least, you know, a world in which it can happen and function and work well for a team that wants to potentially uh, challenge for the title. So I think that what you've got now is a anticipated kind of succession plan. I think that he's, you know, the natural successor to Ben Yedda, whose contract is obviously up at the end of the season. Um, so I, I think it's one that can work very nicely. I mean, this is almost, you know, him launching his career properly. It feels like his career starts now kind of thing because Rance, you know, that was the ticket back home. 
to get to Arsenal and to impose himself didn't happen. Arteta's got, you know, I think it's fair to say he's got his favourites or, you know, the players that he knows well over the course of his couple of years at the club. That doesn't include Balogun, who's been on successive loan spells. So I think this move is is really great for him. I think it's great for Monaco as well. And, you know, very positive signs. He, he probably shouldn't have dived when he went around the goalkeeper just before the international break. Uh, that would have been a nice way to get his first, but um, deserved his goal um, against Lorient. Looked like being the winner, a little bit of a lack of control towards the end. Even from him, I saw he got the ball in the 97th minute and he tried to do a flick around the, the central defender. Didn't come off, mistimed it. Central defender gets the ball back, wins a free kick, free kick, straight up goal uh, is literally 20 seconds. So slightly also responsible for the equaliser in a way. But yeah, I think it's, you know, in short, it's, I think, transfer that will work out very, very nicely for both parties. Well, Monaco are leading the way after five matches this season on 11 points, one point ahead of the very surprising Stade Brestois. Then come Nice and Marseille. Paris Saint-Germain have dropped to fifth. And then it goes down the ladder until we get into the final relegation positions. And there is already a three-point gap between the bottom three and 15th placed Nantes. So Nantes have five points. Lyon, two points. Clermont, one point. And who would have thought it? The Champions League participants for Ligue 1 this season, the Racing Club of Lens, with just that one point to show from five matches so far, you're listening to Jonathan Johnson, Luke Entwistle, Andreas Evagora, and myself, Robbie Thompson. That is our wrap of match day five of the Ligue 1 season. We'll be back at the end of the pod with a preview of the next two rounds coming up. But the big match on the calendar this weekend is Le Classique. For anyone who has lived in France or taken more than a passing interest in Ligue 1, they know that this is more than just a football match. Two of the most successful clubs in Ligue 1 history squaring off and our regular contributor Andy Scott takes a look at what this massive fixture means in France, a match that transcends just sporting significance right across the country and beyond. This is, uh, this is a, a subject which we could um, dedicate several books to rather than just a few minutes on, on the podcast um, and obviously... Here in France, there is plenty of literature about it, but let, let's let's just say that it's the biggest game in French football, and it's between uh, the, the 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 biggest clubs from the two biggest cities. And from a from sort of looking beyond the sport, these are are two starkly different cities as well. So on the one hand, you have the capital, Paris, the seat of power, uh, not just the home of the government, but the 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 powerhouse of the of the French economy as well. Paris is a city of the arts. It's um, a city of tremendous history. It's not really a proper football city. On the other hand, Marseille uh, is edgy. It's got all the character of a Mediterranean port and all the influences that come with that. And it's a city that is obsessed with its football team. So two starkly different cities. Uh, In terms of the clubs, Paris Saint-Germain, of course, were only founded as as many people who like to, to to mock them will will remind you, they were only founded in 1970, very recently for a, a leading European club. Marseille, in contrast, go all the way back to August 1899. They had won the French Cup three times before the French League was even created. That was in 1932, and so they took part in the very first edition of the French League. Um, so historically, very different clubs as well. PSG have won the most league titles. They, of course, broke the record just last year. Um, 
and only PSG and Saint-Étienne. PSG have won the league 11 times, Saint-Étienne have won it 10 times, and these are the only two clubs who've won the league more often than Marseille have. Marseille have won it nine times, but in terms of recent history, of course, if you look back over the last 30 years, Marseille have won the league just once, and PSG in that time have won it on 10 occasions. So PSG's recent history, of course, is, is, is far more glorious than that of Marseille. In terms of the French Cup, these are the two most successful sides in history of that competition. PSG have won it 14 times. Uh, Marseille have won it 10 times. But again, they've not won that since 1989. But they would say, their fans would say, the most important line on their CV in terms of trophies won is the Champions League. They're the only French club to have won it, of course. That was in 1993, the inaugural season of the Champions League. Um, and they will always be a jamais les premiers, as they, as they like to say, forever the first to win that competition here in France. Nobody else has got there yet. PSG have been trying very hard. Of course, they were runners-up in 2020, but they've not got there yet. And Marseille fans will be hoping that they never get there. In terms of the fixture itself, um, because we're coming up to the, the game this weekend, um, I think it's worth pointing out that the, this game didn't grow organically in the way that the Clásico in Spain between Real Madrid and Barcelona has done uh, over a century. And um, perhaps, you know, you might say, you look at another classic European rivalry, for example, the old firm in Scotland, Rangers and Celtic. It, it's not a rivalry that has grown in the same way. These teams hadn't met at all until December 1971, not long after PSG were founded. Uh, at the time, Marseille were the champions. They would go on to retain their title that year and Marseille won that game. But just to, to give you an idea of maybe how relatively minor a game it was at the time, the crowd was given as just under 19,000. So, you know, not exactly the size of crowd and the size of audience we're going to see this weekend. Um, and then if you go down through the years from there, in the 1980s, PSG were still emerging as a force. Marseille's main rivals had really been Saint-Étienne in the 70s. Bordeaux in the 80s because these were the teams with whom they were competing for success and you know I mean obviously we we are the Le Beaujeu the, the, the official league and podcast of course you know it is we want to build up this this game for what it now is but I think we also have to uh, accept and understand and appreciate and 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 explain to our listeners that the way this rivalry came about I mean essentially this was you might say a manufactured rivalry um, and and one of the people behind the almost creation of this rivalry was Bernard Tapie, who, of course, is a legendary figure in France. He died a couple of years ago, um, and the coverage given to his death in the media here was really quite something and reflected the, the size of personality that he was. He, he bought Marseille in 1986. He revived their fortunes. This is at a time when Bordeaux were the big rivalries, rivals of Marseille. They were fading as a force. And then you had uh, Canal Plus, of course, the, the pay TV giant here in France, the equivalent of Sky in the UK, for example. Um, they invested in PSG in the early 1990s, a few years after Tapi had come into Marseille. And it suited Canal Plus with their uh, PSG's president, Michel Denisot, and Tapi at Marseille to hype up this rivalry. And therefore, you could say manufacture this rivalry if you're being, you know, if you were sort of mocking it a little bit, but they, they hyped up the rivalry in order to help Canal Plus increase the number of people buying subscriptions to watch the product. So you create this 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 rivalry and, and you 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 help it become something which over the over the decades since then has turned into easily the biggest fixture in French football, one of the biggest 
in European football. But the reality is that these teams have rarely been competing with each other over the last 35 years or so. If you go back to 1989, that's a year in which Marseille won the league and PSG came second. Um, and, and there was, a, there was a, a period in which they were competing with each other, but then Marseille were relegated for attempted match-fixing, famously in a game against Valenciennes in 1993. It took them three years to come back up to the top division. And in that time, that was really PSG's golden age before the arrival of the Qataris, in which PSG won a league title, they won a Coupe de France, they won the Cup Winners' Cup, they got to a Champions League semi-final. But Marseille were not at the top table at that time. And then, of course, um, the rivalry in the last 12 years has been transformed because of the arrival of, of, of the Qatari owners at Paris Saint-Germain. Um, in the last decade, in which PSG have dominated French football, Marseille have finished second to PSG on three separate occasions, most recently 2022. But they were a distant second, really, on each of these occasions. They've never really properly competed for the title with PSG. Um, and actually, since Marseille beat Antoine Cumboire's PSG 3-0, that was in November 2011, the very first fixture between the teams following the, the arrival of Qatar Sports Investments at PSG. If you look back over the last 28 meetings of the teams, Marseille have won two of them. There have been four draws and PSG have won the other 22 meetings. One of those Marseille wins came last season in the Cup at the Velodrome. And so it gives you this, it kind of confirms to you this, this idea that these teams, although they are great rivals, the, the, the fans certainly, um, you know, they, they are real rivals. They, they, they don't like each other for all the off-field reasons as well as on-field reasons. And Marseille's um, dislike of PSG perhaps has grown because of the arrival of the Qataris in Paris, which has turned them into a major force beyond France and, 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 and a major force in Europe. The reality is that Marseille now find it very hard to compete with PSG on the field. And that brings us to Sunday's game. And the reality uh, being that for PSG, this is a game they will expect to win. And for Marseille, it's a game in which they can simply hope to take something, but they can't expect to. Um, and of course, I think it's worth touching on as well before we wrap this up, that not that many players have played for both clubs, but plenty have. And if you want to name just a few of them, well, one would be Gabriel Ainsey, who might be considered the most successful in terms of what he did for the two clubs. He had a, a three-year spell at PSG in the early 2000s, and then he had a couple of years at Marseille when he played in the team that won the league under Didier Deschamps. He would be the, the prime example. But one or two others you might want to mention, um, and which the guys might want to expand upon perhaps, Claude Makélélé, who played for both clubs, more recently at PSG at the end of his career. Lassana Diara was a recent example. Uh, Lorik Sana was a popular figure um, who played for both clubs. And also George Weah, who, of course, was a great PSG player in the early 90s in that golden period for them between 1992 and 1995, and who did also have a brief spell at Marseille at the turn of the millennium. Okay, Andy Scott with uh, a history of Le Classique. JJ, Andy, just rattling off a few names of players that have played for both Olympique de Marseille and Paris Saint-Germain. There are, there are quite a few of them, some famous names and some famous stories as well. What, any of those catching your interest? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I have very fond memories of my first ever Classique, a 2-1 win for, for PSG against Marseille when I was just starting to, to sort of develop my passion and, and sort of understanding for, for French football and all of its, uh, you know, 
different cultural tidbits. And actually, I uh, happened to see one of sort of the most uh, emotionally charged classics that, that I can remember in a long, long time. Uh, you know, you had Sylvain Armand, you know, immediately writing himself into PSG legend by absolutely going through Fabrice Fiorez, who had swapped PSG for Marseille just a few weeks before. So it was public enemy number one that night at Parc des Princes. Uh, but I have fond memories of it as well, because you've got Edouard Cisse, who, of course, played for Marseille later on in his career, scoring the winning goal, uh, you know, for PSG that game. Uh, you had Pauletta opening the scoring when he was on a run of scoring some phenomenal goals uh, against Marseille. I think everyone will remember that one where he bends it in from the corner flag, which was, I think, the season before this one where he bends in another fantastic finish beyond uh, Fabian Barthez from the from the edge of the box. Uh, I'm pretty sure you also had Modeste Mbame, the the late great uh, former Cameroon midfielder who also swapped PSG for Marseille sort of a couple of years later. I think he was in the starting 11 in that game. So quite a few players just in that game who'd, uh, you know, swapped sides, but, uh, you know, created one of my all-time favorite uh, memories of Le Classic. Andreas, you've, you've, you've been around the traps long, long enough. <laughs> What's your favorite classic Charming. memory? Yeah, I've, I've seen a few and, and, and Andy's uh, Andy Scott's um, piece there, it, there's interesting because of the, this rivalry that is quite recent. And I think what makes it different about France, France is the only country that doesn't have any derbies, really, let's be honest. It doesn't have a real city derby, even a, a, like a Lens Lille. It's not the same city. So that in a way, we're kind of looking to build these, these, these rivalries, which are the heart of all sport. I mean, that's what sport thrives on. So it's a genuine and passionate rivalry. My first one, funny enough, um, Jonathan was saying, was also my first. And it was also a 2-1 win for PSG in 99 when Marseille were closing in on the title. It was I can't remember when which match day was, but it was in May. It was a hot evening. Marseille were leading 1-0 and PSG scored two goals in the last 10 minutes to pretty much deny Marseille the title. And, and the place erupted. There was a, an amazing atmosphere uh, and it's just a shame, of course, this week there's no away fans, which maybe is a subject for for another podcast. But um, fantastic atmosphere and 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 great memories for me and and PSG fans. Well, my first um, classic, I won't be able to uh, really give it give it full justice or even explain for legal reasons everything that went on because outside the ground it was just utter mayhem. Before, <laughs> and this would be in the early noughties. Um, 2000, 2001. Um, it was a period for Paris Saint-Germain who had always had such difficult times against Olympic de Marseille. Marseille were the dominant side in, in the Classique and throughout the, the history of this fixture. Until this period, and, and, and I was there the night that Paris Saint-Germain won 3-0 uh, with Ronaldinho scoring, scoring a couple, and Martin Cadetti uh, got the other, got the other, another one of the lost names of of Paris Saint Germain history. So many of them, um, who got a headed goal, but but Ronaldinho, I think it was a free kick that squeezed through legs and and a and a penalty. But the thing that struck me the most was was the noise, as you say, Andreas, and that that atmosphere inside the Parc des Princes. I mean, probably, and we all know the history of the fans and the ultras at, at Paris Saint Germain and. And the good and the bad, but during that period, I think, and and this is coming from someone with a, a little bit of experience of European football and and what it all means. Probably, the ultras at the Parc des Princes from two thousand and one to two thousand and three four were probably as good as any in all of Europe. But what was what was being done for the 
the choreographies for the incredibly complicated and extravagant, sophisticated uh, mise en oeuvre that they were doing. These these amazing like operas happening in the terraces, and um, that game against Marseille was one of them. It was spectacular from outside the ground, trying to get into the ground. I mean, I really saw everything that this rivalry rivalry meant, and then to be behind the goal in the in the in the stands in the virage, as they call it in France, was uh, something I will never ever forget. It was absolutely spectacular. Gentlemen, what do we think is going to happen this weekend? Luke Entwistle, Paris Saint Germain versus Olympique de Marseille. Marseille currently sitting. In fourth place, it's nine points against eight. It's fourth versus fifth. Um, it's quite even. What what are we uh, what are we expecting? Um, I'm expecting probably stiff resistance from Marseille. Interesting to see how the different systems being deployed by the you know by both teams will um, how it will kind of look. You know, obviously Marcelino with a four four two. You don't see too many four four twos deployed in the league, and and seeing how that works against a uh, an Enrique team will be will be interesting to see. I still expect, I'd say, PSG to win. I, I expect Marseille to go out there looking for the draw, but maybe not to get it. Okay, one for Paris Saint Germain, JJ. Yeah, I mean, I I can't see past PSG uh, in terms of ultimate victors from this, but I do think it's been set up really nicely now. This this entire week, you know, PSG need to perform against both Dortmund and Marseille, and Marseille themselves, after a disappointing result over the weekend, the first signs of a bit of fan unrest, uh, wanting to see more from the players in terms of you know commitment. That famous phrase to you know to to wet the shirt. Uh, you know, to to show exactly what it means and to really sweat and give it all for the for the club. Uh, you know, so I think it's really now a game where Marseille at least cannot afford to underperform. Uh, you know, we've seen that a couple of times already from them uh, under Marcelino. So it's tight, taking time to get going, as it is, uh, you know, on on PSG's end with Luis Enrique as well. But for me, I think that you know these two games will probably wake PSG up, and it might be tight, but I do think the PSG will ultimately come out on top. It's a it's a fair point. It's a big week for Paris Saint Germain. They're coming off a defeat. They've got Dortmund at the park uh, as well in midweek. Andreas, how do you see Le Classique going? I don't think it will be that close. I, I think PSG will win with a bit to spare. Marseille are playing on Thursday, if I'm not mistaken. Are, are they going to play a full strength team? At Ajax uh, less recovery time. E- even putting that to one side, no, I, I think. PSG will get their act together for this match. Uh, it will be an excellent atmosphere. There'll be no away fans. Uh, and I'm sure Kylian Mbappe will, will I was going to say, you know, drill into his teammates how important it is. But, you know, Kola Mwani, he knows how important it is. Dembele, he knows how important this match is. And I, I like that front three because I think they're, I think they're all pretty good mates, aren't they? Certainly Kola Mwani and, and, and uh, Mbappe go back a long, long way. They're, they're both from the same town and born in the same month. So they're, they're, you know, they're French, they're Parisian, they know the importance of this. And as I think I said on a recent podcast, I'm a little bit less optimistic than some of our colleagues about Marseille this season. So I, I think PSG with it, with a couple of goals to spare at least. Well, there you have it. Paris Saint-Germain all the way in Le Classique. Uh, you can put your house on it. Don't. I'm not encouraging that by by any stretch. Anything can happen in football. But Paris Saint-Germain, certainly, according to Le Bourgeois, Jonathan 
Johnson, Andreas Evagora and Luke Entwistle all thinking that Paris Saint-Germain will get up this weekend in the first Classique of the 2023-24 season. Well, it's time for another of our features. It's hardly been common knowledge uh, this season that Olympique de Marseille has an England youth international in their ranks, Emran Soglu. He's carved a place out for himself in Marcelino's senior squad this season, already has his first goal as well. He's one of a vanguard of young Englishmen who have opted to develop their game in France alongside the likes of Follower and Balogun, Steffi Mavadidi and Josh Madger, just to name a few in recent seasons. Soglu is on the up and up in the south of France. And uh, so we got our resident Rivieran, Luke Entwistle, to uh, tell us more. So Emran Soglo, of course, Marseille's newest academy product to come through and feature for the first team. An interesting story and an interesting dynamic as they head into Le Classique because he's a Parisian-born player. So obviously that already adds an element of interest to this Le Classique, a Parisian-born playing for Marseille. Uh, there are a few on the other side as well. See Lucas Hernandez, the, both of the Hernandez brothers, uh, born in Marseille, and now Lucas obviously playing for PSG. But Emran is actually English and does actually feature for the English youth side. So he was born in Créteil in the southwest and southeast even of Paris and played in the youth system kind of around Paris at lots of small teams before as many players do from France ending up being picked up by Chelsea. Um, but this was an interesting transfer because he went so young. He went to the age of 12. So he went to London when he was very young. And that is obviously too young to be going to Chelsea, to be going to an overseas team. So this was actually one of the transfers, one of many transfers that actually saw Chelsea uh, receive a transfer ban of two years. So already he's had a bit of an interesting path. And it comes to a point in 2020 where he is looking to further his career. He's been at Chelsea for six years at this point, and he's wanting to to take that extra step. So in 2022, there are options, it seems, everywhere. It seems West Ham United have a big interest, but he decides to come back to France. So he decides to join for Marseille on a free transfer. So he arrives. He's already in England Youth International. He's paid for the under-17 side in particular. And it doesn't really click straight away. Um, he comes in and he doesn't get into the into the first team during the first year. Obviously, it's quite a hectic summer at Marseille when he arrives. It's the year where Igor Tudor is coming in and he is trying to, you know, lay the groundwork and find his feet at the club himself. And Soglo, in the short term, understandably, did not feature in that. But over the course of the year, he kept playing for the EDG, the elite development group side. So the under-23s, essentially, at Marseille. And he plays well there, but he does lose his, his uh, place in the England youth side because of the fact that he's not, you know, he's not performing at first team level currently. So he takes a little bit of a step back almost in his first year at Marseille, not in terms of technically or, or mentality or anything like that. But he does take a step back in terms of moving away from the international setup because he's no, no longer featuring in the UK, which is probably a disadvantage for, for a player that wants to be in the England setup at, at that age, but also because he's not featuring for the first team. But that changes a little bit with Marcelino. And what happens is Soglo actually really impresses in pre-season. He impresses in particular against Nîmes. He gets himself an assist. And what I think Marcelino likes about him is his versatility because Soglo is a left midfielder by trade, but Marcelino looks at him and thinks that he sees a left back or a player that is capable of filling in at left back. And that's quite important 
for Marseille because when we went into the the summer transfer window, we were saying right they need two right backs and two left backs. Uh, that did not end up happening. And even though they did get Lodi in from Atletico Madrid, Marcelino decided that Soglo was the perfect backup option, especially because of his versatility. Anyway. He doesn't feature in the first games, but then he does make his debut against FC Mets, where, of course, he scores his first goal for the club. So, obviously, a very, very special moment for him. That's playing in his more accustomed midfield position. And I think there will be further you know, options for him to play in left mid because it's a little bit questionable exactly how their midfield works at the minute. We've seen Amina Harrit play on the left, but not so much in recent times. We've seen uh, Correa arrive from Inter Milan, played one game there, wasn't overly convincing, probably more of a striker or an attacker by trade. So it seems like Soglo, this British Parisian player playing in Marseille, will actually get his chances this year playing for Marseille. Will he feature against PSG? It remains to be seen, but, you know, he's already making history by featuring for Marseille. Very, very few players have done that. He's one of six. Uh, of course, Waddle was the the big British player to come and, and really impose himself at Marseille. And he will be looking to do the same. And what better stage to do it on than at the Parc des Princes, scoring in his home city as a Marseille player. Le Classique is coming up in round six, the final match of the round on Sunday night, Marseille. Very focused on the job at hand, but it's their arch rivals, Paris Saint-Germain, that have dominated this fixture and the French footballing landscape for the last decade or so. Marseille can, however, draw inspiration from the OM side that claimed the club's last silverware. It was back in 2010 when a certain talismanic coach got the Olympians firing. He had a few talismanic players in his squad as well. Professor Andreas Evagora takes a look at how Didi who uh, went on to bigger and better things with Les Bleus, got France's second city back on top. Marseille, the 5th of May 2010. The city's old port hasn't seen anything quite like this since Olympique de Marseille were crowned European champions in 1993. Tens of thousands of fans sing and dance as flares light up the sky. Some are even climbing up lampposts and precariously hanging out of windows draped in OM colours. That's because Marseille have just won the French League for the first time in 18 years. These supporters are among the most passionate in Europe. Many regard Marseille as the biggest club in France. Yet 2010 marked their only league triumph in the last 31 years. Here's the story of how they did it. June 2009 and Marseille's owner, Robert Louis Dreyfus, has set about transforming the club. The famed businessman known as RLD has pumped nearly 250 million euros into Marseille since buying it in 1996. But OM have won nothing. After the frustration of lost finals and top three finishes, RLD will do anything to win the French title. Now it's the final roll of the dice. That means pragmatism and plenty of money. Weeks earlier, coach Eric Garretts, a big fan favourite, had been shown the door. RLD says he only wants the best. The new coach is Didier Deschamps, who'd captained OM on the night of that famous Champions League triumph in 1993. Deschamps is synonymous with winning. He also captained France to glory at the World Cup and European Championships. Despite all that, the pragmatic and sometimes dour Deschamps is not the most loved character in France's second city, never attaining iconic status on the south coast. His task is to win over Marseille's fiery and temperamental supporters, and land the title. 
In the boardroom that same summer, RLD takes a risk by axing hugely popular club president Pat Diouf. Parisian TV executive Jean-Claude Dacier is his replacement. Dacier's appointment would prove to be Dreyfus's last big decision. On the 4th of July, Dreyfus died, aged 63. Marseille and French football are in shock. The club's commanderie home is renamed the Robert Louis Dreyfus Training Centre in honour of the man who put the club back on track after a match-fixing scandal in the early 1990s. But there's a huge cloud over the club. Deschamps has been in charge for just three days. RLD and Duf were the two men who convinced him to join the club, and both are gone. That summer, Deschamps set about building a squad in his own style, one with the initials DD. Marseille invested heavily. They also used Deschamps' pulling power to bring big names to the velodrome. Marseille pulled off a huge coup by buying the talented Argentine playmaker Lucho Gonzalez for a then whopping 18 million euros. Lucho arrived with his world-class compatriot, the defender Gabriel Heinze. Eduard Cizé brought experience, but like Heinze, was synonymous with rivals PSG, so risked a fan backlash. Senegal defender Suleiman Diawara was less of a gamble. He'd been a mainstay of the Bordeaux team that had just won Liga. Deschamps called on Fernando Morientes, a proven goalscorer at the top level. Incoming Stefan Ambia and Fabrice Abriel brought transfer spending above the 40 million mark, a huge sum in 2010. These players might have been short-term buys, but they brought the experience and mental toughness that Deschamps demanded. Two existing players were persuaded to drop transfer demands, Tai Taiwo in defence and goalscorer Mamadou Nyang, who was made captain as a reward. Armed with a new club crest and home and away kit, the second oldest squad in the league was ready to fight for the league title, a first in 18 years. The 8th of November 2009, Lyon 5, Marseille 5. French football writers are calling this the greatest game in the history of Ligue 1. Incidentally, two future legends of French goalkeeping, Hugo Loris and Steve Mondanda, picked the ball out of the net 10 times. The media and fans are in raptures. But after the match, Deschamps is furious at his players. OM have let slip a two-goal lead. The team is lying in eighth place. This group of experienced campaigners is going off script and a first league title in 18 years looks a distant prospect. Things don't improve before the halfway point in the season. OM have just 32 points. Details of a crisis meeting between Deschamps and players are leaked to the press. Two days before Christmas, the team is insipid, a 2-0 home defeat against Orsair. As the team labours on the pitch, fans start singing the name of former coach Eric Garretz. Then, near the end, a banner is unfurled. It simply reads, Deschamps, resign. The 27th of March, 2010, the Stade de France, that miserable Christmas is forgotten. Marseille beat their old rivals Bordeaux 3-1 to win the Coupe de la Ligue. Finally, 17 years without a trophy of any kind are over, and that cup win would prove a catalyst in the league. The experienced Edouard Cissé is stunned at the wild celebrations. He thinks to himself, if this is the reaction to a league cup win, just imagine a championship triumph. Marseille become unstoppable. They win seven league games on the bounce. Wasn't always pretty, but Marseille were up to the physical battles, and they had the best set pieces in the country. Perhaps that crisis meeting proved decisive. Years later, Cissé said it lanced the boil. Benoit Cheru said, After the meeting, we came to training earlier. 
We left later and above all, we worked harder. With five games to play, Marseille hit the top and that's where they stayed with Lyon, Auxerre and Bordeaux falling by the wayside. Yet again, Deschamps was proved right. Experienced heads and hardened bodies were decisive in the run-in. The coach got the best out of key players. Deschamps had blanked Mathieu Valbuena earlier in the campaign, but the diminutive midfielder had a key role in that League Cup final and was inspirational in April and May. The mercurial Lucho, who'd missed the start of the season because of injury, won over the crowd with spectacular goals and 11 assists. Club stalwart Cheru enjoyed the season of his life in midfield, while Suleiman Diawara proved the canniest signing of the season. Heinz's PSG ties were forgotten, Taiwo was a revelation, Niang playing alongside Brandao up front scored 18 goals and finished as a league top scorer. The first league title since 1992 was sealed on a famous night at the Velodrome against Rennes. At the kickoff, the heavens opened, drenched supporters saw Heinz bang home a 25 metre free kick. Rennes equalised, but Niang struck again before a glorious finish from Lucho made it 3 1. To this day, fans fondly recall the whole squad piling on top of the Argentine in celebration. That long, long wait for the league and title was finally over. Well, it certainly was a fantastic side. I remember a great story from the season before um, when Bordeaux won the league about Suleiman Diawara. So I'm not going to chat about that when he was reunited uh, with his great friend Mamadou Nyong at Olympique de Marseille. But uh, my favourite player of this Marseille side, and it's not easy to uh, for a Parisian through and through to uh, acknowledge it, but El Comandante that... Uh, and it just Lucho Gonzalez, an uh, incredible player. He arrived from Porto, um, where he spent most of his, you know, European career as a fantastic player there. And he was the heartbeat of that Marseille side. He was he was a remarkable player. Um, I don't think he gets really the credit he deserves because I think if Lucho Gonzalez hadn't been there that season, I don't think Marseille would have would have won the league. I really think he was the the key player, even though I know Mamadou Nyong was was fantastic. It was a crowning moment for so many Marseille players. Um, but for me, Lucho Gonzalez was the difference. JJ, what do you remember of that of that Marseille season? Oh, I remember it being uh, you know one of the uh, you know a, a great time for for French football. You know, PSG and uh, Ligue 1 had already sunk its claws into me by that point. So although I was still back in the UK, I was following it. Uh, you know, pretty much every uh, match day. But I do think specific to that Marseille title winning effort, there were a number of sort of unsung heroes as well. Um, you know, I know that uh, Andreas touched on Fabrice Abriel, uh, you know, coming into that team. But also I think there was a very hot burst of form from Hatem Ben Arfa at one point, which won him. I think he won one of the, the late player of the month awards uh, in that season as well. Uh, Mondanda obviously was, you know, starting to carve out a reputation for himself as one of France's, uh, you know, better goalkeepers as well. So, you know, plenty of uh, of sort of fond memories, just of sort of how competitive I think Ligue was just in those couple of years, uh, you know, leading into Qatar's arrival in Paris as well. All right. Well, Le Classique is on this Sunday night in match day six of the Ligue 1 season. And of course, you can catch all the previews and build up to that on league1.com as well. This uh, game does not go unnoticed in France. It is a massive fixture. And um, let's go Le Rouge et Bleu. Well, now it's time for the world's toughest quiz, possibly the only quiz on uh, 
obscure French footballers that I uh, like to bring the clues up and make them as cryptic as possible. They're almost undecipherable, yet somehow every week uh, our diehard followers do manage to find out who the uh, elusive player is. So it's called Deja Who. We're after you to name a former or current French footballer, someone who has played in Ligue 1. Uh, the clues are quite cryptic, sometimes quite vague, other times, uh, well, just impossible to try and understand. But if you do think you know who it is, email us at league1podcast at gmail.com with your answer. And all correct answers go into the running for a Ligue 1 Uber Eats jersey each month. We had our first clue for this month two weeks ago. This is the second clue coming up for your chance to win a Marco Asensio PSG jersey. So listen carefully, get your thinking caps on, and here we go. Who am I? I grew up in a footballing family and as a kid was coached by my dad who almost made it as a pro with one of the big two clubs from my home region. I ended up playing for the other one with whom I made my league on debut at just 18 years of age. Over the next 16 years, I won the Ligue 1 Uber Eats title three times with two different clubs, two Coupe de France crowns with the same two clubs, and I lost a Coupe de France final with a third club. I also lost an FA Cup final in one of my two spells in England. Added to all of that, over those 16 years as a pro, I played over 50 times for Les Bleus, featured in two Euros and one World Cup. Who am I and what am I doing now since retiring? So, there you go. Very experienced player across the channel and in France and uh, a good player and now still involved in football. So there you go. If you think you know who it is, I see a few uh, vacant stares amongst the, uh, the panel. I won't uh, put anyone on the spot to see if they uh, know who it is. Send your answers to league1podcast at gmail.com for you to go into the running for a classic-inspired Marco Asensio Paris Saint-Germain jersey. And don't forget, while you're here, to follow us on Twitter at league1 underscore eng for English. League1.com is your one-stop shop for all things League 1 football as well. And, of course, the podcast like subscribe follow and recommend all right well we're almost done it's time to look ahead to our next two rounds of the league on season we've spoken a lot about le classique everyone here on the panel including myself is predicting a paris saint-germain victory so let's have a look ahead now to the other matches in round six of the french top flight the league on uber Eats season Nantes versus Lorient, Brest versus Olympic Lyonnais. Uh, well, that's a who would have thought that it, that would be second versus uh, third from bottom at the start of the season. Metz versus Strasbourg, Luave, the promoted side against Clermont, Lens v Toulouse, Montpellier versus Rennes, the classic, of course, in the final match of the round, and Lille are against Reims as well. Gentlemen, I'm going to ask you very quickly in uh, for a prediction. Give me a score and uh, a one sentence about what you think is going to happen and why. And because 
This is the Côte d'Azur derby. Where else would we start? But with Luke Entwistle, Monaco versus Nice. Massive match, Luke. In 10 seconds or less, what's going to happen and why? It's going to be a narrow Monaco win uh, just because of the offensive might of Monaco and Balogun getting his first goal, potentially in line for his first start as well. Andreas Evagora, do you agree? I think that is a really hard one to call. Um, I will go for a, a high-scoring draw, but that, that's, a, that's a really tough one. I thought we can talk about another potential derby, which was Met Strasbourg, and I think there'll be some fireworks there, but sorry, that's breaking the rules. It's a weekend of, of, of classic stroke derbies, isn't it, looking? There's quite a few. It is, and, and just because you brought it up, I'm going to give you the option in round two of round six to talk about that one as well. But before then, JJ. What do you think of the Côte d'Azur derby? I'm thinking along similar lines to Andres, to be honest, after seeing Nice up close uh, at Parc des Princes last week. Uh, I, I don't see them losing this. I'm going to say that I can see them getting a draw. All right, next game in round six. Well, let's do it then. The Eastern derby, Metz versus Strasbourg. Andreas, all your Christmases have come at once. What do you <laughs> think is going to happen in the derby de l'Est and why? Well, I can say that that is a fiery atmosphere because they don't play each other that often because Mets go go up and down don't they and it's in the scheme of things you know obviously it's not even in the same departement but it is it's a big derby there'll be a really good atmosphere there I'm a little bit worried about Patrick Vieira at Strasbourg they they've gone off the rails and I think Mets might be up for that um and yeah I'll I'll go for a, a rare Mets win I think in in the first part of this campaign so yeah Mets all right. Well, Luke Entwistle, what do you think? Because Metz stunned Lens last weekend and uh, Strasbourg showed a little bit of character. I think maybe, you know, Patrick Vieira is just starting to, to get his feet under the, under the table. Perhaps there's, there's time for him to bounce back. What do you think? Um, I mean, on Andreas's, you know, statement, I'm not sure if, you know, he's ever necessarily on the rails since arriving at Strasbourg and having watched Vieira quite regularly at Nice, um, I wasn't a big fan of what he proposed as a manager. Um, I'm along the similar lines as Andreas. I, I think that this is a talented Strasbourg side, but I think that Mets are stronger collectively and better drilled under Bologna, who's, of course, got that new contract. Very, very well-deserved as well. So uh, Mets as well for me. JJ, how do you see this match between Mets and Strasbourg at the, the famous Stade Saint-Symphorien? Yeah, what can now be considered the Frederic Antonetti derby, seeing as he's coached both uh, teams in, in fairly recent There's history. There's lots of those, Jonathan. Uh, I'm no, going to say... Antonetti's coached just about <laughs> yeah, everyone. That's true. He's got a week. couple of personal derbies dotted around uh, over the years. Um, I'm going to say draw, entertaining draw, quite a few goals. Uh, you know, I think there's going to be a lot of passion on show. Um, yeah, and fingers crossed that lives up to the billing. All right, so that is a huge weekend coming up this weekend. Le Bourgeois won't be back for another two weeks, so we're going to have a quick look ahead to match day seven as well. There are some massive matches there as well and some very passionate games between supporters. Just look at Strasbourg versus Lens between uh, some great sets of supporters. Reims versus Olympic Lyonnais, that could be a massive match as well um, in the scheme of things. Paris Saint-Germain are on the road to Clermont, Havre. The Normandy side taking on the northern side, Lille, Nice versus Brest. Now, at the moment, that is second v third, but that may yet change. Toulouse are taking on Metz, Lorient, Montpellier. And uh, we're going to start, though. Andreas, 
Well, the First one, of all, the one that stands out. We'll stick with the Monaco thing. Yeah, um, Monaco Olympic Marseille. I, I can see, and I'm, you know, I'm not. It's not all doom and gloom at the Velodrome, but I can see Marseille losing those. I think we can all see Marseille losing those next two games, and that might put them. I don't want to use the word Marseille crisis, but that would leave them in a, an uneasy position. Uh, two two Marseille defeats on the bounce. I, I hope I'm wrong because you know I. I think a good Marseille is good for Ligue 1, but I'd be very worried. And that's a standout fixture, Monaco-Marseille, isn't it? It is. JJ, it's a historical fixture in, in Ligue 1 as well. How do you see this one going? Yeah, I'm really curious to know sort of what results Marseille are going to pick up in the next couple of weeks because, I, you know, I think that could potentially define their season or at least the, the first part of their season. I agree with Andreas. I think Marcelino will be under a lot of pressure if they lose to PSG and Monaco. Uh, and to be honest, I don't see Monaco losing that one. So, you know, I, I would say at least a draw for the hosts. Luke Entwistle, how are you seeing this? Are you going to put the mocker on your team or leave it open-ended? I think that, I mean, we're saying that, you know, it could plunge Marseille into crisis. And if Monaco lose the next two games, then you, you wouldn't say that they're in crisis. But, um, you know, it's two huge games for Monaco as well as, as, well as for Marseille. Uh, and it could change the dynamics of the entire season. You know, currently we put Monaco potentially in the title challenge kind of category. Uh, you have two defeats on the bounce and that talk will quickly stop and you'll start thinking about, okay, can they get Champions League? So uh, big for, you know, huge for, for both sides. Uh, I, I once again, like uh, like Jonathan, I, I can't see Monaco losing that at home. So um yeah, let's see. Okay, the other big match that's jumping out, or at least on paper for me in match day seven, JJ, is one that always uh, has fireworks as well. We talk about Mess versus Strasbourg and these local rivalries. Now, Ren and Nantes are not quite in the same department, although a lot of people would like them to be. Nantes is the traditional capital of Brittany. Ren are the current capital of Brittany. These sets of supporters hate each other. And there's been some movement between the sides in recent seasons as well with players on the pitch. It's again the case this season. This is the Breton derby par excellence. How do you see it playing out? Yeah, I think uh, <clears throat> all eyes will be on Ludovic Blas after making that switch over the summer. Uh, you know, and it, it is, it's always a game that you look forward to, a lot of talent on show. I remember a couple of years back when Usman Dembele was sort of bursting onto the scene. He made his name in this fixture as well. So, uh, you know, always something to look forward to, you know, colourful from both sets of uh, fans. And uh, this this one promises to be really entertaining. And uh, I I would probably shade, uh, you know, Ren as favourites for this one. But in these kind of games, you never know. They are a side playing in European football. They are uh, trying to become the powerhouse in that region as well after not have been for so many years, uh, several times French champions as well. Ren's still looking for that first ever crown. Are we seeing a changing of the guard or is that too much? Um, I think we maybe are seeing a, a, a change of the guard, but um, I think that Nantes could have enough to actually win this. I'll book the trend and say that Nantes might win this. I mean, I also had Nantes struggling a lot, uh, not convinced by everything going on at the club, but I think there's some interesting players. I think Mustafa Mohamed has started in electric form and I think they've got a few interesting young Kind of new talents coming through as well and not a team that turn up for the big occasion have done so many times in recent seasons and you don't need to go back too far to see an incredible draw against marseille despite being down to 10 men in the ninth minute 
a three-three draw against Monaco in recent times as well. They, they turn up, and uh, I think they'll turn up for this match as well. It's a huge occasion, as you say, at a local derby. Um, so I'm actually going to go for for Nantes to get at least something from this, if, if not a win. Well, we've had plenty of fantastic action in match day five. We saw new league and debuts. We saw. Last-minute equalisers, last-minute winners, last-minute penalties missed. Kylian Mbappe scored another two goals but turned out to be on the losing side. We saw a couple of scoreless draws, which is a rarity these days in the French top flight. And um, hopefully there's plenty more to come over the next two weeks. But that is it for Episode 4 of Le Beaujeu, the official Ligue 1 Uber Eats podcast. I have been your host, Robbie Thompson. I have been joined by Jonathan Johnson, Andreas Evagora, and Luke Entwistle as well. We hope you've enjoyed the show. Don't forget, get involved in the conversation on Twitter at League Un underscore ENG. Like us, subscribe, follow and recommend on your favourite podcast platform. And if you're looking for any of the latest news, stats, interviews, everything, it's all on League1.com, the official League Un website. From all of us here, all over the world, but particularly in France, for the love of French football, it's au revoir et à bientôt. Play it again, the Marseille have the points.